I have, in recent years, <clears throat> discovered something about myself that I did not know. Now, you've probably done the same thing at different times and in different seasons. You have discovered things about yourself you did not know. Well, what I have discovered in the last four years is that I'm a list maker. I never knew that. But as I look back past that four-year mark, I recognize that I've been making lists for a long time. I really have. All kinds of different lists. Now, here's how I came to know that. When we dropped our daughter off at college, 1,600 miles away, Tina and I said goodbye to her, and we got in the truck, and we headed on down the road, and as soon as we could both talk again, and I'll just leave it at that, our first order of business was to make a list. We made a list. It's on my phone. You can go into the notes section or the notes app, and you can see it. It says, empty nest destinations. That was the first list we made. We just got to talking, I think more than anything, to distract ourselves about places that we wanted to go and places that we wanted to experience now that it was just the two of us. Some of them are local and some of them are abroad. Empty nest destinations. There was a lot of comfort that came from making that list. It's kind of wild, kind of unique when I stop and think about the fact that we found solace, we found comfort and peace in making a list. But then, of course, I read articles like this from the New Yorker magazine, and it, it really does make sense to me. Listen to what they write. It's no secret that people love lists. They go on to say, they're organized, require minimal effort to read, and can make complicated information easy to digest. Lists appeal to our innate tendency to categorize information, as well as help us feel less stress interesting when you understand the situation we were in and the first step that we made. We were highly stressed and we made a list. It worked. New Yorker, whoever wrote this, was right. Seeing information as a list makes you feel less overwhelmed by a task so it's easier to complete, which in turn makes you happier. So if you've never tried it, here are 22 lists to get you started. This is pretty good. Recipes you want to try, movies you want to see, books you want to read, TV shows you want to watch, restaurants you want to try, places to see, cities and countries you want to visit, places to visit in your hometown. Passwords, that's a good one. Make a list of passwords. Our middle son reminds us all the time. Make a list of your passwords because he sets things up for us in our house and then when they go down, we have to call him and say, hey, Eli, fix this for us. And he only lives 650 miles away and he says, use your passwords. Well, we don't know what those are. We were hoping you wrote those down. Make a list, he says, passwords. Daily to-do list, done list, bucket list, short-term goal list, long-term goals, do-it-yourself projects, home improvement projects, grocery list, drugstore list, wardrobe updates, important dates, due dates, and favorite quotes. 22 different lists that you can start with. Now, that's a good way to get going on this thing, but now that I have discovered that I am a list maker, I have pretty much embraced it. And over the course of the last seven days, I've made a number of lists. We made one together with our staff on Monday morning as we were getting ready for Thursday night pursuits. We had to make sure that everything was taken care of, so we made a list and we started putting check marks next to the things that were taken care of. Fall party is coming. We have a list of things that we have to make sure are taken care of as we come into the fall party. I was getting things together throughout the course of the week. Another list rose out of that. Lists are a normal part of my life today. 
The last one that I made was Friday afternoon, sitting in my office. I titled it, 30 Things That Have Recently Brought Joy to My Life. That's the last list I wrote. 30 Things That Have Recently Brought Joy to My Life. I'll share them with you. I stopped at 30 for your sake, not mine. I just stopped. Here you go. Number one, talking to my wife for hours. Two, FaceTime calls with our granddaughter. Three, hunting with my sons. Four, driving a few thousand miles with my sons. Five, hearing my daughter's dreams. Six, hunting with good friends. Seven, shooting a limit. Eight, watching dogs work. Nine, long rides on my new horse. Ten, two special days spent with my dad. Eleven, laughing with my brother. Twelve, laying with our puppy at night. Thirteen, watching our puppy learn. Fourteen, Thursday night pursuits. Fifteen, a special time of prayer with our staff and leaders. 16, being challenged by a friend. 17, laughing with our staff. 18, snow piling up outside my office window Friday afternoon. 19, there's only one person, possibly two. Well, there are two people, possibly three, sitting in this room right now that will understand this one. Matt Warner, and I don't know about James. I certainly know Tina knows this. Let me get this. A Culver's Butter Burger. <laughs> 20, peach pie. 21, Five hours in the saddle with our son-in-law-to-be. 22, getting to hunt a coveted field. 23, cleaning the shop. 24, everybody in this room ought to understand this. A satisfying trip to the dump. Number 25, people speaking truth in the midst of chaos. 26, pictures of a new baby a friend sent me from the hospital. 27, answered prayers for others. 28, answered prayers for myself. 29, prayers that didn't seek answers. 30, the thought of all that God has waiting for me in heaven. 30 things that have recently brought joy to my life. Encourage you to write a list just like that. It'll make you smile. If you're a little bit depressed, it'll change your perspective. If you need to see things differently, lists like this can bring your head up out of the, the dirt and get it near the clouds. Make a list of things that have brought joy to your life. Share it with somebody else, especially those that are on that list, and let them know that they have been a source of joy for you. But it's that last one on my list that I really want us to focus on today. The thought of what waits for us in heaven. The thought of what waits for us after this life is over. That ought to be a source of joy for every one of us. It really should. It ought to be something that puts a smile on your face every time you think about it. We're going to ask the Apostle Paul to help us do that this morning. To help us think about what waits for us when this life is over. And he's going to do it from the book of Philippians. So if you brought your Bibles with you, open up with me to chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Maybe a list will rise out of this for you. Love this passage of scripture. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in the last half of verse 18. The great apostle writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now let's stop there for just a second. Before we get into the meat of what I want us to talk about, we need to back up and see what Paul is addressing so that we can get all of this in context. So we're going to take those two and a half verses and we are going to walk back to verse 12 because verse 12 through 18 will put all of this in the right perspective. 
Listen to what he says, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. And then he goes on to say, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now let's put this in the right perspective so that you understand what's going on. You just heard it for yourself. The apostle is in prison. He has been preaching while locked up. And a number of believers that were locked up with him have been emboldened. And they've been preaching. He has strengthened the people that were in the same jail he has been in. But interestingly enough, outside of the jail, something else has been happening. Other people have started to preach because of what Paul has been through. Isn't that cool? The answer is yes, but then as you read what Paul just wrote, there's a certain element of no that gets attached to it too, because there's two different groups of people that are preaching. There's those that are preaching Christ out of pure love for God and for others. That's why they're preaching. And then there's this group of people that seem to be preaching solely for the purpose of hurting the apostle Paul. He says that they are doing it out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. They're doing it for their own reasons. They're doing it to gratify themselves. It may be that they're receiving some sort of a stroke to their ego. It may be that they feel like they can make money off of the gospel. It may be that people are coming to them and it's, it's making them feel better about themselves. Whatever the case might be, the Apostle Paul wraps it up with this summation. They are doing it out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And they're trying to hurt him. And to a certain extent... It's working. He's been hurt. But when you put all of that in the perspective of everything that's happened in the Apostle Paul's life, that's really nothing. If you need to be reminded of all of the things that have happened in his life, then join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 16. And you're going to see how this little blip on the screen is nothing for him. And as you read about some of the struggles that Paul has been through, it may actually help you put some of the struggles you face, and even that we face as a nation, in the right perspective. Take a look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. I repeat, that's Paul, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, little tongue-in-cheek. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool." 
I also dare to speak of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far more greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, don't you love the list he's making, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is a blessing forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. He goes on, chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. If I must go on boasting, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why Paul can say from inside that prison cell, that's all right. If they're preaching Christ and they're trying to hurt me by doing so, and maybe they're even dragging me through the mud, it's, it's all right. Because the gospel is still being advanced. People are still coming to know Christ. And if God is using their weak efforts to accomplish that, so be it. It's okay. It's as if Paul is saying, it really doesn't matter. And in the overall scheme of things that I have experienced on behalf of Jesus, what these folks are doing, that's really nothing. It's okay. I can handle that. I can handle that, he says. I love the fact that he does. Because he puts things in such a great perspective for us. He shows us how to handle our own struggles. And he did that with the last line of the verse that, he, or that we just read in Philippians chapter 1. This is in verse 20. Well, we'll just read the whole verse. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, listen to this, whether by life, or by death. And with that one sentence, whether by life or by death, Paul sets up some incredible teaching in the New Testament. 
absolutely incredible teaching. If you are an underliner, a highlighter, a note taker, get ready because I am about to give you a verse of scripture that becomes a springboard to answer questions that almost everyone deals with at some point in their life. So get ready to highlight this. If you're a Bible mapper, then go to the front of your Bible and get ready to write your very first waypoint in Scripture. Now let me go back because I know we have a number of new people with us. If you don't know what Bible mapping is, Bible mapping is a way of using Scripture to lead your way through certain discussions. So you start at the front of your Bible on a blank page where you write a topic and then you write the Scripture that you're going to use for that topic but you go to the very first passage of Scripture that you have written, you highlight that, and in the margin of your Bible, you write your next destination so that it becomes a map all the way through your Bible for the discussions that you find yourself in. All you need is the entrance point in the front cover of your Bible, and then from there you have everything mapped out and you're ready to go with it. This is one of those things you may want to map, and I'll give you the title for it in just a second. But first, let's look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if you're mapping your Bible, the heading that you want to put over that in the, inside the front cover of your Bible is, what happens to us when we die? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 is the springboard to all of the other teaching. And there is a ton of it in Scripture. There really is. What happens to us when we die? Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Instantly helping us understand that when a believer dies, when this life ends, and we begin in the presence of the Lord, we begin eternity there, something happens almost instantaneously. And there are other places that will back that up. So if you're mapping your Bible in the margin of your Bible, then write these passages, or this reference down, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 10. Now you can go back to the front cover where you have written that heading, and you put Philippians 1.21, right underneath that, put 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Because you're going to find the second destination in this exploration. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very great thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now take all of that teaching in those 10 verses and here's what you learn. There are two places for a Christian to be, in the body or with the Lord. 
There is no other place. You are either in the body or with the Lord. And as long as we are in the body, we are away from the Lord. But as soon as we die, we are no longer in the body. We are no longer in the flesh. We are now instantly with the Lord. Just that quick. Your last breath on earth precedes your first breath in heaven. And it goes that fast. When a believer dies, we are with the Lord. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and Steve, help me out with this. I have seen people that I have truly believed were already with the Lord. Their body just didn't know it yet. Their body was still hanging on, but they were already gone. They had already gotten a head start on it. I've seen it a number of times. You've seen it as well. And then the body just gives up and the tent is done, tear it down, camp is over. They have already left. That's the way it works. It is that fast. It is that fast. When a believer dies, we're there. We are with the Lord. Now, there's all kinds of wonderful teaching about the first resurrection, the second resurrection. We don't have enough time to get into all of that today. If you want to talk about it, Deanie is around any time. He'd love to talk with you about all the details of the second resurrection and be happy to, to work his way through that with you. So you sit down and visit with him or with Matt, and they're, they're just happy to give you all the details. There's a whole lot of things about what happens to us when we die that are still a mystery, but this one isn't. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When this world is over, man, I am moving on. When this life is finished, I am in the presence of God. How glorious is that? That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now you might hear a statement like that and wonder to yourself, how can Paul say something so emphatically? How can he make that statement? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That just seems like, like there is no question in his mind whatsoever. And there isn't. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Boy, he meant every word of it. An old preacher named Maltby Babcock, when he was preaching through this passage, had a great way of describing this. And this has been around for over 100 years. Babcock preached this back in the late 1800s, and I don't know that anybody has come up with anything better since then. Take a look at this. Maltby Babcock, life is what we are alive to. Life is what we are alive to. That's pretty good. Now, you can apply that whole philosophy to anything that you want. You could plug in any number of different things. In fact, I would encourage you to break it down however you would like to so that you can really understand the priorities of your life. And you can utilize the Apostle Paul's statement, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's telling you the whole sum definition of his life. It's Jesus. It is Jesus. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now that's, that's just good stuff. But there are other ways that people would define themselves. For some people it might say, for me to live is my job. And to die is to no longer have it. For me to live is money. To die is the absence of it. For me to live is a relationship. To die is to lose it. For me to live is plug in whatever you want. For some people, it might even be in the world that we live in today. For me to live is security. To die is the absence of it. 
the fact that the stock market is so up and down and, and the political world is so tumultuous leaves people at a place where they would rather just check out and not even be here. For me to live is security, to die is to lose it. For other people it might be, for me to live is my health. To die is the inability to do the things that I love. See how that works? You can plug in anything you want. Use Paul's equation and figure out what the truth of your life is. For the Apostle Paul, he would say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's, that's just great teaching. It really is. Let's go back into Philippians 1, and we'll see how strongly he feels about it. Pick up with me, verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am, am absent, I may hear of you and your standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Now look at what Paul says. It is far better for me to depart and be with Christ. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm tired of this. And you can understand why from what we read out of 2 Corinthians just a few minutes ago. If you had been through everything Paul had been through, you would probably be at a place yourself where you would say, hey, I'm finished. I don't want to do this anymore. I have been shipwrecked enough times. I have been beaten enough times. I have been kicked out of enough cities. I have been mocked and abused. I've had rocks thrown at me. I've had people trying to destroy my ministry and my life. I've been locked up in prisons. I, I'm just ready to go. There is something much better waiting for me. I am ready to go. But Paul says, I'm still here. I am still here, and as long as I am still here, God has a purpose for me, and I love the way he breaks it down, and you are my purpose. Paul says to the readers in Philippi, you are my purpose. It is better for your sake that I remain because God isn't finished with me yet. God has not said that my work here is done, so I will stay for your sake, for your sake. When Paul says for me to live as Christ, he is communicating a burden, and that gets communicated even deeper as we go through the rest of Philippians chapter one. His burden was for other people. And as long as there was an unsaved person, Paul said, I need to stay here. I need to stay here. If there is one person that the Lord wants me in their path, then I'll be here and I'll stay at it. I'll just stay at it. That's why we never get the privilege of saying that I'm going to hole up in an ongoing quarantine and not go out and, and share my life and the gospel with other people. I'm just going to stay here and be fed. Paul never gave us that blessing. He said, no, no, you have to get out there because there's people that need to hear from you. That was a burden. So Paul was willing to put off what he desired the most, which was to be in the presence of the Lord for the sake of others. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. 
What a great statement. You know how deep that went for the Apostle Paul? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't until Friday afternoon as I was studying. Just near the end of writing the message, and I, I came across a passage that I'm, I'm still just chewing on. And I can't even tell you how many times I've read it and not seen this. And it, it has me off balance just a bit. Shared it with the guys that I pray with on Sunday morning, and we spent some time talking about it because... I'm that off balance by it. I want you to see it too. In fact, this is so personal. I, I'm not even going to stand up on the stage as somebody that can preach this and teach this with authority because I am making my way through it the same as you're going to have to. I want you to see what Paul says. Join me in Romans chapter 9, would you? Romans chapter 9. Verse 1. Take a close look at what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now at any point in that one verse, can you catch a glimpse that Paul isn't serious about what he's about to say? Listen to this again. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I, I, I couldn't be any more serious about this. Now listen to what he says next. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now you may be like me, as you stumble through that passage, need the help of some other translations to wrap your head around it. Let's start with the New American Standard Version. Take a look. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now that's from the New American Standard Version. I sent that to Beth the other day and she put it in the slides. And I, Where is Beth? Beth is around someplace. She, she may very well have changed something because if you have a New American Standard Version sitting in your hands or you have the ability to go to it on an iPad or a phone, you will see that there is one word that is italicized. So Beth, did you change the italics in this or did it come out this way to you? Okay. So it, it just somehow in the translation went to her this way. The word separated in the original version of the New American Standard is italicized. Okay. You hold on to that. Eugene Peterson, in his translation titled The Message, will help you understand this passage even more. Take a look. At the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times a huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain deep within me, and I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. It's the Israelites. We're, we're going on. What's the next slide? If there were any way I could be cursed by the Messiah so that they could be blessed by him... I'd do it in a minute. They're my family. I grew up with them. They had everything going for them. Family, glory, covenants, revelation, worship, 
promises, to say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over everything always. Oh, yes. Did you just see what Paul said? For the sake of the Jews, for the sake of the Israelites, if they would become believers in Jesus, he would give up his salvation. He would give up his salvation for me to live as Christ. I want you to think through, in your mind, list of people that you love that are not believers. Do you love them that much? I would give up heaven for them. I would give up my salvation. I would choose hell that they might know heaven. Thankfully, God puts a boundary in our life that prevents that from happening. We cannot ransom the life of another person. Only Jesus can. That's how deep that statement goes. For me to live is Christ. So much so that I carry a deep burden for the lost. Particularly the Jews. If they would repent, I would go to hell. For me to live as Christ. How does somebody say that? Life is what we are alive to. It's what Maltby Babcock would say. Life is what we are alive to. However many times I've read Romans chapter 9 and I can't even begin to tell you I have never seen that. I've never thought of Paul saying for me to live as Christ to that extent. I would give up my salvation for the law. Well, that takes us into what he says next because we have to understand what he's really saying he would give up. To die is gain. That's the heaven aspect that he say, I would surrender that. I would surrender eternity in heaven. I would give up heaven. That, that instantaneous thing that happens when I die and that glorious thing that lasts forever, I would give that up that others might know it. Wow. Wow. That is, that, wow. That, that's in the original language. Wow. That, that's in the Greek. Wow. How does anybody say something like that? Well, in, in our world today, because we have sterilized the idea of heaven, we have removed from it the desire that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1 as he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. He uses that word desire. That's something that, that comes up, it wells up from within us. I desire to be in the presence of the Lord. I desire to be with God. Well, we have so sterilized heaven in today's modern teaching that we have taken that desire away from the church. We have created this children's picture book idea that heaven is nothing but sitting on clouds and playing a harp forever, that we have actually placed it in the realm of something that seems tremendously boring, and there isn't that much desire for it. As a result of that, people are holding on to this life so tightly that they can't ever say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. They have not become alive in Christ because they're not looking forward to what waits for them. In the early church, in the first church, those folks suffered so much that they wanted nothing more than to check out of this world and move on to the next. And you heard some of those sufferings as Paul listed them. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would say, I desire to depart and be with Christ. I just don't want to get hit by a rock again. 
I don't want to be locked up anymore. I don't want to be deserted by those that were with me. I don't want to be betrayed by friends. I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I desire to depart and be with Christ because I know what waits. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God gave him a glimpse of it. He took him up into the third heaven and he allowed him to see it. And then God said to Paul, don't you tell anybody what you saw. This is too much. Don't you tell anybody what you saw. They can't handle it. This was for you and you alone. But after that experience, Paul just said, whew, I desire to depart and be with Christ. And then imagine what it took for him to say, I would give all that up. I would give all that up if the Jews would just come to know him. He knew what heaven was. John Piper does a great job of describing heaven for us. Take a look at this. Heaven will be a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever greater joy in him. The perfection of heaven is not static, nor do we see at once all there is to see, for that would be a limit on God's glorious self-revelation and therefore his love. Yet we do not become God, therefore there will always be more, and the end of increased pleasure in God will never come. That's heaven. That's why forever, because it never ends. The increasing joy of God never ends. And don't lose sight of that ever-increasing part of it. Heaven is not this destination that once we get to it, we've just soaked it in, and that's all there is. It is ever-increasing. And as a result of that, there should be an ever-increasing desire within God's children to experience it. The Lord gave us that hope and then he made it so mysterious to keep it somewhat cloaked for us so that we would long for it and it would bring joy to us. It would be one of those things that put a smile on our face. It would be one of those things that blesses us every time we think about it so that we can get to a place where we pray prayers like, come Lord Jesus, come. We just said, it's okay, Lord, I'm ready. I want to come be with you. I'm ready. The trials of this life have been too much. I'm done. I'm holding on to this loosely. I'm ready, Lord. That's the joy of heaven. But until God says it's time, you stay here, just like the, the Apostle Paul said, because he still has a job for you to do. Get busy doing it. Keep at it. Keep at it. Because through your life, there may just be one more person that gets to experience that joy and that desire of heaven. But if you've lost the joy if you maybe never had it, maybe you, all you have carried with you is that sterilized Sunday school idea of playing harps on clouds forever, then maybe you need to rekindle the joy of heaven. You can do that through what I would refer to as nine surprising things from the Bible about heaven. Nine things to just keep the joy alive. Here they are. Take a look. Number one, you won't miss your old lives. God has more in store. Number two, you won't become an angel, but you'll be with them. That is such a terrible doctrine that has permeated modern Christianity that when you die, you become an angel. You don't become an angel. Angels were created beings. The full number of the angels is done. You don't become an angel. You become something much greater, a joint heir with Jesus. You get to experience thing that, things that angels long to look into, Peter says. You don't become an angel. You become an heir. Boy, that's cool. You are royalty. Number three, you won't be tempted. There is no sin in heaven. Somebody give God a round of applause for that. 
Number four, you'll have work to do. Like Adam, you were created for it. There's nothing to make us believe that we are just wandering around heaven forever with nothing to do. God has something in store for you. You were created for work. As far as I can tell, there's only three groups of people that are going to be out of work. Law enforcement, funeral directors, and preachers. That's it. That's it. Everybody else has a job to do. So I'm kind of hoping that God will tell me, hey, I got a job for you. It's in the barn. Go take care of the horses. Number five, you'll experience emotions. Why else would there be all those feasts and banquets and singing? Number six, you'll gain a lot of knowledge, but you won't know everything. Isn't that intriguing? You'll gain a lot of knowledge, but you won't know everything because you will not be God. We do not become gods. Say it with me. We do not become gods. So if anybody ever brings you that teaching that when this life is over, you become a god, you run from them because they're bringing you heresy. You do not become a god. Number seven, you'll recognize other people. Heaven will have a lot of traits like a great reunion. If you don't know that you can trust that, then you just think about the transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah, and they knew them for exactly who they were, even though they had died hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter, James, and John would have ever seen them. And I cannot imagine that God sent them back from heaven during the transfiguration wearing a lanyard with a name tag. <laughs> they knew them. They knew them. You will know people in heaven. Number eight. You will never be bored. There is no sin. You know that there's no record of Adam and Eve ever being bored in the Garden of Eden? Sin came and boredom entered the world. That's why we always chase it at a greater level, because sin breeds boredom. There will be no boredom because there will be no sin. And number nine, hell won't spoil heaven. And a lot of people worry about that. They really do. They think to themselves, well, I know that there's people that I love that won't be in heaven. How will I be able to live with myself? Because like Paul, I'd give up everything so that they would know heaven if I could. Well, you trust this. Hell is real, but it will not spoil heaven. There will be people in hell because they chose to reject Jesus. That will not spoil heaven. How God is going to prevent that, I'm curious to see but he will. And that's one of the promises of Revelation 21. There will be no crying, no mourning, no pain. The old order of things has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God has surprises waiting for us. And that's one of them. Let heaven be a source of joy for you. Paul started out by saying, and I will continue to rejoice no matter what, because I know what waits. I know where I'm headed. And I will continue to rejoice.